0: January the 12th 2010 Was a day that my life was changed in so many ways I'd woken up that morning and I was at the breakfast table. We had a little TV uh, in our kitchen area We turned it on and there was some news on about a terrible earthquake that had happened in Haiti and of course, we're trying to eat our breakfast and you know convince the kids, hey, let's have a good day, let's be positive. Uh, I quickly turned the channel because we didn't really want to explain you know everything going on with the earthquake, and they were showing some disturbing images. So I turned it off on the way into work that day. I heard again on the radio about thousands presumed to be dead in Haiti. So I turned quickly to sports talk radio. And I get to my office and I sit down and I open up my computer and uh, pull up the morning news to see what's going on. And when I pull up the news, I begin to see some images, images like this right here. And I see this image and I'm like, man, how awesome that someone came to, to rescue this kid, but man, how terrifying. You know, it must have been, because obviously he was pulled out from under some rubble and man, that's kind of messed up. And before I could click off of it though, I saw another image that looked a lot like this image. And I was captivated by this young boy's face, the look of despair on his face, the look of hopelessness. And I began to wonder, what is his story? Perhaps this this young boy, perhaps he lost a family member. Per, perhaps he's sitting next to, to this woman right here, and, and and they're already grieving the loss of someone. Perhaps someone is missing. Maybe he himself, I see he's kind of cut up. Maybe he himself was under a building that collapsed and, and he was pulled out and he's just scared. And as I see this, I remember I began to, to pray. And I prayed a prayer, something like this, God, this is really messed up. God, these images of children being pulled out from under buildings, it's kinda hard to handle. Would you please do something about this situation? Now I knew in my mind, because often the question that is uh, normal to ask in situations like this is God, why? why did something like this happen? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to those who are innocent? And I know in my head the answer to that is that the evil and the destruction and the injustice in the world today is a result of sin. Why? Because sin separates, sin destroys, sin decays. Sin takes everything good that God made and all the harmony of that and it breaks it. So I kind of moved past the question of why. The why is we live in a messed up world. And my prayer was, God, can't you just do something? God, do something for this young boy right here. God, would you send someone to help this child? And in that moment, I don't know if you've ever been in this place before or not, but in this moment, as I'm trying to God help them do something, amen, let me close my computer, let me move along with my day, I felt like I could not end the prayer because I felt like even though I stopped talking, I felt like God started talking. And I felt like the spirit of God was impressing on me this question, trip: why do you always pray that I send somebody else? Why do you always pray that, that I do something about it, but you assume that I'm going to use other people to do that? Trip. why don't you do something about this? And in that moment, about a million uh, excuses, a million reasons popped in my head. Like, how in the world am I going to do something for a kid in Haiti when I don't even know where Haiti is? It's somewhere in the Caribbean, maybe down there somewhere, maybe an island. I don't know. How how am I going to do something somewhere? I don't even know how. If I had a plan of what I could do, how am I going to get there? Planes are not flying into Haiti right now. And if I were to find a way to get to Haiti and I discovered where Haiti was and I were to be in Haiti right now sitting next to this boy, what in the world am I gonna do? What am I gonna do for him? See, in that moment, with every excuse in the world on my mind, I found myself in a position that sounds a lot like a position of a man that I've read for years, even when I was a little child, the story of a man named Moses in Exodus chapter three. We read this story right here. It says, now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. Yes, that was his name, Jethro. He was from Clemson. So Moses is tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there an angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought I will go over and I will see this strange sight while the bush does not burn up. So check it out. He's, t- he's watching sheep, probably not the most exciting job in the world. And all of a sudden he sees a bush that is on fire in the wilderness. And like any guy, he says, oh, cool fire. And so you go check out what's going on. But this bush is, is on fire, but it's not burning up. So there's something different about what's going on with this bush right here. So he goes over to the bush and as if it's not strange enough that there's a bush that's on fire and it's not burning up, the bush begins to talk to him. Now I can imagine he's probably a little freaked out by this, but then he realizes that isn't a bush talking, This is God speaking to him through an unusual circumstance. And in verse four, it says, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. So not only is a bush talking to him, the bush knows his name and the bush calls him by name and he realizes that God is speaking to him and God is calling him in a very unusual way to come closer. And Moses said, here I am. That's a pretty good response when God's trying to get your attention. Here, here, here I am. God, I'm right here. What, what do you want? And in verse five, God said, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing Is holy ground. So God says, Moses, I want to talk to you. I'm not talking to everybody here. I want to do something in your life. I want to have a personal conversation with you. And Moses says, okay, well, here I am. And he starts rolling over there toward the bush. He's going to have a conversation with God. And God says, hold on one second. Boy, take your shoes off. Because you're standing on holy ground right here. Don't just come rolling up in here like, hey, well, yo, what's up, God? This is about to be not just a conversation, this is about to be a God conversation. See, God goes on to make sure Moses knows who he's talking with. He says, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. God makes it real clear Moses, I'm God, and I know you by name, and I want to speak not just to everybody here. I want to speak to you, and I want to do something in your life right now, but before you roll over here, why don't you take off your shoes, because I want you to know that a conversation with me is not just like a conversation with anyone else. You're standing on holy ground, and when Moses realizes who he's dealing with here, who's wanting to have this conversation with him, Moses falls on his face in reverence before God. See, God's got his attention. See, God used a bush that was burning to get him to come over there. Now God has his full attention when Moses realizes the king of kings and the Lord of lords wants to do business with him. So here's what God says. God says, Indeed, I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt, and I heard them crying because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. See, the people of God, the Israelites, Moses' people, the Hebrews, They were enslaved in Egypt, and they called out to God, and God heard their cry, and God said, I'm going to deliver you, and he says to Moses right here, I have heard their cry, so I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land. And then in verse 10, he says, so now I want you to go for I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Hold on, God. The burning bush, that was kind of cool. You calling me by name was kind of overwhelming. Realizing that I'm in the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, that's too much for me to handle but what are you saying you're saying that you want to deliver the israelites out of slavery but you want to use me hold on you you want to use me to do that and in this moment that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to moses he begins to do what i've done many times in my life when i felt like god was calling me to something he begins to rattle off excuse after excuse after excuse of how God must have this situation all wrong. Let's check out quickly his excuses. In chapter 3, verse 11, but Moses protested, who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? His first excuse is who am I? God, I'm a nobody you want to use me? You got, it, you got the wrong guy. Who am I? I am a nobody. Look at God's response in verse 12. And God answered, but I will be with you. See, Moses says, but God, I'm a nobody. And God says, but I, I am somebody and I'm going to be with you. Moses goes on. Okay, that, that excuse didn't work. In verse 13, but Moses protested, if I go to the people of Israel and tell them, the God of your ancestors has sent me, they will ask, what is his name? What should I tell them? His second excuse is this, God, I'm not a theologian. What if I go and they start asking questions? What is his name? Now, it's interesting here, the wording that he uses. He doesn't say, who is he? Who is sending you? He says, what is his name? Because who is sending you could have simply been a title. They would know Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. By saying what is his name, it's referring to his character. Or another way to say this is, what does God have to do with this situation? Well, check out God's response. In verse 14 and 15, God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. And say to them, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you. This is my eternal name, the name to remember for all generations. So Moses says, what if they ask what God has to do with this situation? And God says, why don't you remind them of my eternality? Why don't you remind them of my sovereignty? Here's a paraphrase of that. Moses this is my story. This is my plan. Someone's going to ask what do I have to do with their life? I gave them their life. Someone want to ask what I got to do do with this situation? I'm relevant to every situation because I am God. I always have been and I always will be and this is my story. Okay, well what about this excuse? In chapter 4, verse 1, but Moses protested again. What if they won't believe me or listen to me? What if they say the Lord never appeared to you? See, he's saying here, you know, what, what if I don't succeed? What if I'm not convincing? And God responds, Moses, what is that in your hand? And Moses said, a shepherd's staff. God said, throw it on the ground. So Moses threw it on, on the, the ground and it turned into a snake. And Moses jumped back. I guess he did. Then the Lord told him, reach out and grab his tail. So Moses reached out and he grabbed it and it turned back into a shepherd's staff in his hand. Catch this now. Moses' excuse was, God, what if I'm unconvincing? And God said, how about you just go do what I ask you to do? And you let me do the convincing. But, but 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 God, but but God, and God said, What's in your hand? Well, a staff. Of course he would have a staff. He's a shepherd. Why don't you take what you have, throw it on the ground? So he does. And what happens? It turns into a snake. And Moses jumps back, like I would. And God said, Won't you grab that snake by the tail? Ooh, okay. Eeh he grabs it by the tail and it turns back into a staff God said oh oh you still questioning who's going to do the convincing and he goes through two other scenarios where finally Moses is like okay so I guess you can do the convincing well what about this Moses said in verse 10 but Moses pleaded with the Lord oh God I'm not very good with words I never have been and I'm not now Even though you have spoken to me, I get tongue-tied and my words get tangled. Apparently, Moses had a speech impediment. He couldn't speak well. And his excuse here is, God, I'm not qualified for this. I'm not a preacher. You want me? I can't even talk well. And and, and you want to take this disability of mine and you want to use that as a part of your plan? And God says, this is the greatest comeback right here. In verse 11, Moses said, God, I can't even speak well. You want to use my mouth? And God says, who makes a person's mouth? Who decides whether people speak or don't speak, hear or don't hear, see or don't see? Is it not I, the Lord? I love this comeback. God, I don't think you can use my mouth. And God said, who made your mouth, boy? I made your mouth. If I I want to use your mouth... I can use your mouth because I made your mouth. If you're keeping scores like God won, Moses zero. Moses is not doing too well arguing here. So he finally resorts to this last excuse. When all other excuses have failed, he finally says, after God says, now go, I will be with you as you speak. I will tell you what to say. In verse 13, but Moses again pleaded, Lord, please Just send someone else. His final excuse here is I'm just not interested in what you're doing, God. I get it. You got all the answers. I get it. But I'm just not interested. Check out what's happening here. God has a plan. And Moses is destined for greatness, yet he's trying as hard as he can to sabotage his own future by making excuses to God. As you're thinking about New Year's resolutions, getting in the gym, dieting better, and all that, why not make this one of your New Year's resolutions right here? I will not sabotage tomorrow's greatness with today's excuses. Day after day, week after week, month after month, we find ourselves so often, I do, sabotaging God's best for my tomorrow by my excuse today. And God says, Trust me, you go, let me do the work. Well, even as Moses is still making these excuses, look what God does in Exodus 4. Then the Lord became angry with Moses. Uh Uh-oh, you done messed up, Moses. And God says, all right, what about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he speaks well, and look, he is already on his way to meet you now, and he will be delighted to see you talk to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with both of you as you speak, and I will instruct you both in what to do. Aaron will be your spokesman to the people and he will be your mouthpiece and you will stand in the place of God for him, telling him what to say and take your shepherd's staff with you and use it to perform the miraculous signs that I have shown you. With every excuse in the world, God says, Moses, (laughs) my man Moses, listen, I've already got it worked out. I've already gone before you and made a way and made your crooked path straight and you can't see it from here. But while you're sitting here running your mouth with excuses, I have already sent Aaron, who happens to be a great communicator, I have already sent him and he's coming here to meet up with you to fulfill my purposes in your life. See, what happens so many times is we think if God calls us to do something, we think God's going to run out of resources. When God says, you give and you let me provide, you give what I ask, you join me in what I'm doing and you let me be God. I think of the boy who had just a couple of fish and a few pieces of bread. And he said, this is all I got, but here you go. And Jesus takes it and he blesses it and he starts ripping it apart. All of a sudden, 5,000 people are fed and there's 12 basketfuls left over. I think of the widow who only had one mite. She just had a little coin. What am I going to do with this coin? She gives all she has. And for thousands of years, her story has been an inspiration in the word of God. Over and over and over and over in scripture, we see that God takes what people give him in his name and he blesses it and he multiplies it and he uses it for his kingdom and glory. That day, January 12th, sitting at my desk, after having a conversation with God, I'd run out of every excuse in the world. And so finally I said two words that would change the direction of my life. I said, okay, God, I'm in. I don't have the answers. I don't know what you're about to do. but but I'm in, I'm just gonna trust that you're gonna be God here and wherever you guide, you're gonna provide. Wherever you lead, you're gonna equip. I'm just gonna let you be God and I'm in. Long story made short is this, I got on the phone and I talked to my buddy Wes and God had already been dealing with him and I said, Wes, I think I'm going to Haiti. He said, I'm in. Well, I know they needed doctors there, so I'll call my buddy Bruce, who's a doctor. I'm in. i call my buddy Mike, who's a doctor. Mike, I'm going to Haiti. Yeah, I'm watching this on the news. How are we going to get there? Don't know. What are we going to do when we're there? Yeah, not real sure. But I'm going. And he said, you know what? God's been working on my heart. I'm in. My buddy Daryl, who's in the aviation field, I'm in. On and on and on. About six of us finally said, all right, God, we're in. Don't know what we're going to do. Don't know how we're going to get there, but you're going to have to provide over the next day and a half, God not only provided through a, uh, a guy I knew who was a uh, president of a hospital, all the supplies we could pack in a cargo truck. God also provided through Rick Hendrick, racing team, Woo, NASCAR, go ahead, provided a private jet, Rick Hendrick's private plane that was carrying supplies and missionaries down to Haiti, relief workers. God worked out. A day later, I'm sitting on Rick Hendrick's plane. We've got a bunch of uh, supplies. We fly to Haiti. We had gotten word that they were performing amputations under a tarp with nothing but Tylenol. I'd gotten an email that said, please bring supplies. Please bring doctors through a buddy of mine who was so we show up and we're on the tarmac in Haiti and we got all these supplies on a, a big pallet. What do we do now? All right, God, you're gonna, have, you're gonna have to give us some direction here. We're in Haiti. I don't know what to do here. Well, we got word that there was a clinic called the Gascao Clinic. It was an AIDS clinic that had been converted to a trauma center. So we paid a guy 20 bucks for his pickup truck, to use his pickup truck. And we loaded it with supplies. And we make our way through town. And as we're going through town, we see pictures like this. This is my buddies. You'll see a picture of my my buddies who went with me. And as we're riding through town, these are the scenes that we're seeing. And we're seeing buildings that had collapsed. And this next picture, there's people that are trapped under that right there. We see people who are sleeping in the streets. And I'm praying this whole time, God, what are you going to do with me here? But I trust you're God, so have your way. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm beyond any amount of training. I'm beyond any amount of qualification I have. You're just going to have to be God. So we pull up at this Gasqueo Clinic, and there was a large soccer field. It was like two soccer fields right by each other. And there were thousands of people literally laying on the ground with tarps pulled over them, makeshift tents. And we kind of part the crowd as we pull these supplies through and we get to this clinic and we walk in the clinic and the doctor who's in charge of the clinic begins to talk to us. And I I said, ma'am, we've come a long way to be here, but we're here to help. She said, thank you so much. And I look around and I see a lot of supplies were stacked up. I see doctors from different countries around the world there. And I said, ma'am, one thing seems really strange here. I don't see any patients in here. She said, well, yeah, that's the problem. I said, what's the problem? The U.S. 82nd Airborne was guarding this facility that was walled in. She said, we're not allowed to go outside of these walls because we fear riots. It's not safe out there. But for some reason, the people are not coming in. And I said, what can we do? She said, I would not recommend this because it's not safe. We need someone to go out there and bring people in. So we huddled up and we prayed and we said, well, we didn't come all this way to sit behind a wall and be guarded. God, you're gonna have to be God. And let's see what happens. So we broke up into two teams and we had two interpreters with us. My buddy Juno and this other guy and we walk out into the field. And as we walked up, we see a young man. And my buddy who's a doctor and my buddy Juno is an interpreter, we get down and he begins to treat this young man. And as he's treating this young man, the crowd start pressing in around us and they start, somebody yells Something. And then someone else yelled the same thing. And before long, the whole crowd is yelling something in unison. And my buddy who's a doctor, he's like, what are they saying? And I said, I don't know, but I think they're saying, let's kill the tall ball-headed guy. (laughs) His eyes got real big. And my buddy Juno, the interpreter, said, he's not saying that at all. They're saying, you are from God. You are from God. You are from God. And I can't adequately describe what happened from there. But that afternoon and for the next six days in that field, I saw people who were laying on the ground dying. And I said, what, what are y'all doing? There's, there's a hospital right there. You see it? You're dying. Why don't you go? To, there's someone that can save you right there. There's someone that can give you life right there. Why do you not go? And person after person said, I can't afford a doctor. And we said, ma'am, sir, this is a national emergency. There's doctors from all over the world that have come to give you free healthcare. And they said, nobody told me. We saw children drinking what looked like coffee, dark coffee. And I asked about it and they said, that's water. And the little kids' bellies were distended and they had worms and other gross things going on. And they were literally killing themselves by drinking this water. And we said, do y'all see that big tank over there? Part of our team just set that up It's a water purification unit. And you can have free, clean water that can give you life. You know what they said? No one, we heard about it, but no one ever showed us the way. Now, if you th- don't think God didn't do some speaking to me in that moment, If you think God didn't impress on my heart trip, how many people do you literally step over every single day that need life but no one has told them the way? So we began to pick up people and carry them across soccer fields and set them down in the hospital where they were treated and where they were given life. I saw things that week I never wanted to see in my life We're about three days in, and a guy comes up to us and said, I think I need to see a doctor. Well, what's wrong with you, fella? And his, what's the the big bone in your leg here, a femur? His femur was broken and sticking out of his leg. This was almost a week after the earthquake. We said, why have you not been to a doctor? He said, I went after the earthquake, but they sent me home and said there were others who needed a doctor worse. To be able to pick up people like that and literally carry them to a place where they could receive healing and life. At the end of that week, we leave and I'm on an airplane. I get back on the Rick Hendricks plane. And as we're about to to pull out, there was an older gentleman. He was wearing coveralls. And he walked up to me and he said, Son, I was dirty, filthy, smelly. He said, Son, I know what you're thinking. And I said, What am I thinking? He said, you're thinking with all the work you've done this week, the need is so great that you really didn't make a difference. I said, man, that's exactly what I'm thinking. He said, let me tell you a story. And he proceeds to tell me a story about one day there was a big storm and thousands of starfish were washed up on the beach and a little boy was walking down the beach and he was picking up the starfish and throwing them back in the water. And a man sees him and he ridicules him. And he says, son, what are you doing? He said, I'm saving the starfish. And the man laughed and said, do you really think with all this need, do you really think you're going to make a difference? And the boy bends down and picks up a starfish and he looks at it and he throws it in the ocean. And he said, I made a difference to that one. On that ride home, the Lord spoke to me and said, "Trip." You maybe can't save all the kids in Haiti, but you know what? Would you allow me to be God? And would you allow me to use you how I want to use you? I know I'm about out of time here. Ten months later, me and several of my buddies started a nonprofit organization called the Haiti Orphan Foundation. Do I have a clue how to run an international nonprofit organization? Not a clue. But you know what? God led us to a pastor that we partner with there. We were able to get a house there that we call the Grace Children's Home, and we were able to take in 15 boys that we've made a commitment to raise them to be leaders in their country to effect change for the glory of God in Haiti. Look at what God is doing. Do I tell you this story to say, "Wow, look at me, I'm cool. I know what I'm doing. I'm saving kids around the world. No, because I don't have a clue what I'm doing. But I will tell you, my life changed when I simply said, God, I'm in. I'm in to what you want to do. See, as we give, God does a number of things. We can't give more then God will give back. See, God doesn't ask you to give without him giving more. And as we give, God promises his presence to us. I will be with you. As we give, God promises his power. Trust me, people will know I'm behind this. And as we give, God promises his provision. This Christmas season, I've seen in you this story played out over and over And over again, as I've seen you minister to hundreds of families through the ministries of this church, I've seen people step up where there was a need, a family in need. And I've seen some ladies step up and say, God, whatever you want to do, use me. And I've seen this family minister to in a life-changing way. I've seen some of you step up to join in with our backpack ministry. I've seen some of you step up to provide Christmas presents to hundreds of children. And it's the same story over and over and over again of God saying, you give what you have and watch me be God. Let's bow our heads together. God, we know that as we give to you, you are always faithful. And through faithful obedience, we can experience your absolute best for our lives. God, we know that Moses experienced your best when he gave you his attention. Father, if there's someone here today that you want to work in their life, and they've simply not been giving you their attention, would today you call them unto you. When Moses moved beyond excuses, you began to do miracles, God. May you lead us today to set aside those excuses that are robbing us from your very best. And God, we know that Moses trusted your plan and God, you provided blessing upon blessing for him. Would you today trust God in those areas in which it's been hard to trust? Would you today say, God, I don't know the future, but as I move into a new year, God, I simply want to say to you, I'm in. I want to trust you to be God. I want to allow you to do what you do. So here, take what I have and I give it to you. Maybe here today, like Diane, you've never taken that step and today is the day that you want to say, God, I want to trust you and you alone to forgive my sins and save me and to make me God, today is today. I need to put my faith and my trust in you. If that's you and today, you would say, I know I've never put my faith in Christ and today I need to take that step. Today I need to say, God, for the first time I am in, I trust you. If that's you, would you raise your hand right now with no one looking around? Today I just need to take that step. I've never trusted Christ and today... Thank you. Hands all over. If that's the desire of your heart today, would you in your own words to God say something like this? God, today I want to trust you. I know that the blood of Jesus can pay my sin debt, that did pay my sin debt. I know that there's forgiveness in you. I know that there's wholeness in you. I know that there's peace in you. So God, today I am in. I give you my heart And I give you my life. Today, come into my heart and save me. Maybe you've trusted your life to Christ before. But as God is calling you to trust him with your today, you've held something back. You've made an excuse. You've found another way to do it on your own. And today, your prayer is, God, I just need to say I'm all in right now, today. God, I want to trust you with this new year. I want to trust what you're doing around me. I want to trust, and I'm all in. I'm all in what you're going to do in my family. I'm all in this new year, what you want to do at Sugar Hill Church. I'm all in right now to what you want to do in my life. I don't want to rob myself or my family or my church of your richest blessings. If that's your prayer, would you raise your hand right now and say, this year, I want to be all in. Thank you. Hands all over. Amen. So God, this is the desire of our heart to be all in. And God, as we're all in, we know that you are faithful. We know that you do miracles. And we know that you want the very, very best for us. In Jesus' name.